Thank you for that, and good morning to everyone. It's not a small thing to ask you to give up part or even all of your Saturday to come out and listen to someone talk, but I appreciate your willing to do, willingness to do that, and I am grateful to be here with you today. I'm going to start by telling a little story on Pastor Mark. I'm sure he won't mind too much. We'll see. He'll let me know afterwards. It was summer of 2009, and we were just coming to the close of a certain study, and I think it was an Old Testament study. It may have been Trey O'Rear who was leading that particular study. And Mark approached me and said, is there a book of the Old Testament you'd like to teach next uh, for the Sunday school? And, of course, my mind's already kind of going around about this. And I said, yes, the book of Genesis. I'm not sure what his response was going to be, but it was kind of a curious response. He said, so do you think the first 11 chapters or so? And so at this point, I'm having to have a little conversation with myself and say, if I tell him I want to teach the whole thing, he's going to say, no, that's going to take too long. We're not going to do that. So I equivocated my response and said, why don't we just get started and see how it goes? And we got started that summer, 2009, and we brought our study of Genesis to a conclusion in December of 2010. As best I can reckon, it took about 15 months. There were about 60 lessons, but frankly, I lost count. There are 50 chapters in Genesis, of course, and even with the goal of teaching one chapter a week, which is really inadequate for probably any book of the Bible, uh, it still took the better part of a year and a half to get through that study, and it was a delightful time. In my own experience of it, it reminded me of like, you know, I I have this picture from um, the voyage of the Dawn Treader, where the kids are in the room and they're looking at the picture of the the Dawn Treader on the wall, and then all of a sudden they, they can smell the sea spray and then they can feel it and then suddenly they're in the picture, and it was a lot like that of just being pulled into the narrative of the life of these men, these patriarchs, uh, men of God, but obviously fallen, um, and it was just a delightful time for all of us. So in a sense, it kind of feels like being back here, and you know, the older you get the passage of time, you kind of lose track of it. It's like when I saw Mark and Bill this morning, and it's kind of like, hi, and then thinking, wait a minute, I haven't seen them in a year and a half. I should probably do more than wave. So uh, it, it literally has been more than 10 years since we finished that study, and yet this morning it feels a little like picking up where we left off. And it was a delightful time. I've continued to think about the book of Genesis over the years and the importance of it. And even though it's the case that we tend to focus the controversy in Genesis over the question of creation, when you take a step back from it, you realize, wait a minute, Genesis contains virtually all the important doctrines of the Christian faith. It's not just a question of how did God create, but it's a question of where do we get our most fundamental Christian doctrines. And so the defense of Genesis and the teaching of it is an important aspect of of our Christian lives, and we should not neglect it. 
So as we think about this first session, I've titled it Truth and Reason. I might add to that, Truth and Reason in an Age of Madness. And by the way, there was a, a scripture reading that, uh, that goes along with this. So let me turn your attention as we start this session to the book of Acts in chapter 26. You may not believe me when I say this, but I selected the title for this chapter or this session before I found this passage in the book of Acts, and uh, it's actually in the New King James Version that says it just the way that I want to, so I'm going to read from the New King James. But in this passage in Acts, starting in verse 24, Paul has just appealed his case to Festus, uh, to Caesar, I should say, through Festus, and then King Agrippa comes through town, and King Agrippa wants to hear Paul for himself. So they have the royal court is convened, and Paul is brought in, and he begins a long defense. And so we're not going to read the whole defense of Paul in this section, but I'm going to pick it up at that point where it kind of hits home in verse 24 of Acts 26. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself, much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Now what strikes me about this passage and the idea that we're going to pick up on Look at what Paul says. It starts with a denial. What's the denial? I am not mad, but I speak the words of truth and reason. And frankly, it's either one or the other. You either have words of truth and reason, or you have madness. And this contrast shows up many times throughout Scripture. We think in terms of psychological disease, we try to find human or biological explanations for that, uh, behavioral explanations, those kinds of things. But the connection in Scripture is that when you begin to abandon truth and reason, you literally go mad. You go insane. You no longer have a grasp on truth, and you no longer have the ability to think clearly or properly. And isn't that where we are in our culture today? If, If you think... And you might think this, I certainly do. I look around and I think, am I the only one who's still sane? Because everything I see around me seems like madness and chaos. I'm listening to what's being said, I'm listening to what's being spoken as if it were true, and yet the narrative is so contradictory and so confusing that you can't make sense out of it. And that's kind of the madness of our times. When we begin to disconnect ourselves from the truth, we we literally have no foundation. Now, I want to make a connection for you. And to do that, first, I'm going to turn to a small book in the back of the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk. And I'm going to look at a couple of verses from the end of chapter 2 verses 18 to 20 in the book of Habakkuk. It's among the minor prophets. It's about it's the fifth book from the end of the Old Testament. 
So chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, where he says, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And I want to pick up on the idea in that particular passage about this thing that has no speech, and yet it's a teacher of lies. And another passage that I want to turn your attention to, which is probably a little easier to find and a bit more familiar, is in Psalm 115. I'll start at the beginning of Psalm 115 and read down through uh, verse 8. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And this is the part I want you to consider very carefully this morning. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And here's the clincher. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So let that passage ring in your mind a moment. What do we become when we start making idols for ourselves? Speechless? Blind? Deaf? Unable to see or perceive anything? Unable to speak? Powerless? That's a profound statement that when we begin making idols for ourselves, we become like the thing that we make. And over and over again, and, and it's often the case that in Scripture when the Lord is talking about idols, He's doing it in kind of a mocking way. You know, you, you make your idols and you prop it up. If you don't prop it up, it's, it's going to fall over because it can't even hold itself up. You have to carry it from one side of the room to the other and so forth because it cannot move under its own power. Or you carve an idol out of wood, and then with the rest of the wood, you build yourself a fire to warm yourself. Those kinds of things. The folly of idolatry shows up over and over again, and it's one of our chief sins. And we are certainly not immune to it in our own day. But this is what we might call the madness of relativism. Now, what is the creed of relativism? There is no such thing as absolute truth. And we notice that that is constructed in a logical fashion and that it's a contradiction. And so if 
we start with a contradiction, then that means we have already abandoned reason at the outset. And so we have this idea that there's no such thing as truth, and in order for us to declare that there's no such thing as truth, we first have to abandon reason in order to even make the statement. And so you see the madness that we are left with in that scenario. So we take a minute at the beginning of this conference to think about why why the book of Genesis? Why is it important? There are those, unfortunately, who think that the Old Testament is of very little importance to the Christians. Some will even say, there's nothing there for you. And yet that's a very foolish thing to say because I seem to recall Jesus taking a walk with a couple of disciples after the resurrection and saying to them, starting with Moses and the prophets, opening the scriptures to show to them all that the scriptures say concerning him. And where does the book of Moses start or the work of Moses? Well, Genesis is actually in many ways called the first book of Moses. Genesis is a title that was added later on after the Septuagint. So Genesis, if we think about what Genesis is teaching us in just these first, let's say the first three chapters, the first two chapters concern creation, the third chapter concerns the fall and the curse that follows. Just within those first three chapters, we could pretty much address all the crazy kinds of issues that we're facing today. And we'll see that as we go through the course of the day. Now, in terms of doctrines, if we start looking at Genesis in terms of doctrines, we're going to find dozens of Christian doctrines in the book of Genesis. I was originally kind of hoping I could get nine sessions this weekend and thinking nine will get us started but the session decided that six was probably about all we could do at once. So I squeezed it down, but trying to teach something about the doctrines in Genesis in just a few sessions is a hard thing to do because there are so many things that we could choose, so many doctrines. Now, Genesis is an historical book. It's not a doctrinal book. If we think of doctrinal books, Romans is one of our favorites as Reformed Presbyterians. The book of Hebrews is also a great theological book. But Genesis is history, and yet within that history, we see the unfolding of God's work and God's plans, God's relationship with man and how he deals with man, the fall and how he's going to begin to deal with the fall. That Genesis from the beginning of end has been described as the narrative of redemption, that it's God's unfolding story of how he relates to mankind, especially after the fall. And, of course, that culminates in the person and the work of Christ, who is the answer to everything that was lost in that fall of Genesis 3. Now, as we come to this, we have an important question to ask, and this is where I'm going to get a little philosophical and a little nerdy for a minute and throw out a big word called epistemology. And epistemology is the science of knowledge. Or or it helps us answer the question of how do we know what we know. We might ask the question more fundamentally and say, how do we know anything? 
That's a profoundly important question, the kind of question philosophers have been wrestling with for literally thousands of years. And if we're going to know something, we have to have some kind of a starting point, and that's the challenge. Well, I did a little word study on epistemology. I look at this word and I think, that looks Greek. So I start digging around in the Greek lexicon. And so it's a compound word. You might notice the epi on the front is a prefix. And so we need to know what does the, the prefix mean? How does it modify the root? And what is the root of this thing? And so you dig down a couple of layers from epistemos to ephistemos to stao, which refers to standing. Okay. And then what does the epi do to that? And it means to stand upon. And that's an interesting little word study because it gives us the idea that we need something to stand on. And that's what we're looking for. We need truth. We need a standard for truth. And of course, it's going to drive us to the Word of God. We need to spend some time thinking about how do we know anything because think about how we learn anything. Well, first of all, we need language, for example, or we need senses. And then when it comes to revelation, we need to be able to use our minds. We need to be able to use logic. We might even notice there are different kinds of letters that are combined in different kinds of ways that mean different kinds of things. And when we combine those words in certain ways into sentences following grammatical rules, they have meaning. So we need that kind of thing as a starting point. It seems to me that epistemology is a bit of a circular argument, no matter what your view is. So we have to assume something in order to learn something. And then we need some kind of a process to help us work through what's true and what's not true. And that's where logic comes into play. And one of the most important laws of logic that come into play is the law of non-contradiction, meaning that an idea and its opposite can't both be true at the same time and in the same relationship. And then that leads us to an idea that we call antithesis, that if something is true and something else says the opposite, they can't both be true at the same time, and that opposites are distinct. We can make distinctions. One of the unfortunate consequences of some of the more modern philosophy, thinking of Hegel and his dialectical synthesis, is the idea, yeah, we have, an, we have thesis and we have antithesis, but we're going to mush them together and call it synthesis. Well, suddenly, we can't make any distinctions at all. And that becomes a real problem when it comes to understanding what is true and what is false. How can we determine the difference between right and wrong in a, in a system like that? And the answer is that we can't. And maybe that's the point. <coughs> so that brings me to the next point, which is the necessity of revelation. Now, Scripture describes revelation in two different ways. We talk about natural revelation, which is God making himself visible through the things that are created, and also through Scripture. Now, at different times and different places, as it says at the opening of 
Hebrews. God revealed himself in different ways. But in these latter days, he has revealed himself through his son and specifically through the written word, the written accounts of the life and the work of Christ. So we, in our age, have the word of God that is complete from beginning to end. And it's important to have in mind that this book is our standard. We're going to see, for example, when we look at what happened in the fall, God makes Adam and Eve, he places them in the garden, and then he gives them a commandment. In other words, he gives them a word. And he says, of all the trees in the garden you may freely eat, but of the one that's in the midst of the garden you may not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. There's the truth standard, the measuring stick. And then a serpent comes along and says, did God really say that? Is that what he said? Is that what he meant? No, he didn't mean that. You're not going to die. So suddenly, we see the first dilemma. We see the first challenge to truth. And if we abandon that standard of truth, as Adam and Eve did in that moment, then we're almost certain to fall. So it's always been God's intention for us to have his word as a way of discerning truth from error. So it stands in a very high place in our minds. Let me look at a couple of quick verses just to emphasize natural revelation. One, probably both very familiar to you, Psalm 19. It's a very common one. David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And that sounds a little like what the Apostle says in the first chapter of Romans, isn't it? What does he say there? Romans 1, verse 20 For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we have that idea of natural revelation. There is no one, as Paul will say, who has an excuse for not believing in God because he's revealed in the things that are made. Let me also share with you an excerpt here from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our doctrinal standard in the PCA. Coming from chapter 4, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself. The author thereof, and therefore it is to be received, because it is the word of God. And yet from the very beginning, what we see is man, rather than receiving the word of God, doing what? Judging it, evaluating it, and rejecting it. Now, we could ask this question. I've talked a little about the idea of antithesis. 
things that are opposites, things that cannot both be true at the same time and in the same relationship. I want to throw out another word for you, dichotomy. It's another one of those Greek words, isn't it? And it basically means to divide something into two. So a dichotomy would be that we're going to divide this assembly right down the middle. We have those people on this side and those people on that side. The two of them together include everyone. So we've divided it into two parts. And we see dichotomy, for example, in regard to the relationship between truth and error. It's either true or it's not true. Or we could say in terms of morality, it's either right or it's wrong. Okay, So that's another important concept that we need to deal with, and we're going to deal with it pretty quickly because where do we see the first illustration of antithesis and dichotomy in the Scripture? Yeah, the very first verse, isn't that something? In the beginning... Okay, where's the dichotomy there? There's a beginning and then there's a before the beginning. Or we could say there is a time and there is an eternity. God created the heavens and the earth. Well, let's just take God created. There's a distinction between God who creates and the creation that he creates. And the heavens and the earth, a distinction even within the created realm we start to see the distinction between what we might call terra firma and the sky or the heavens. So we start to see this right away, and it goes throughout Scripture. And we're going to talk about how the, the perhaps the greatest dichotomy of all is the dichotomy of salvation. There are only two endpoints in eternity, heaven and hell. The Scripture doesn't permit any other. There's no annihilationism. There is no salvation after death. There is either salvation or judgment. And so from the very first verse to the very last verse, Scripture is dealing with these kinds of things. And if we don't have a grasp on basic reason, then we're not going to be able to understand things very clearly. Now we could ask the question, what is the source of all confusion? And there's a little hint there. There is someone in Scripture who's referred to as the father of lies. That would be Satan, who shows up in chapter 3. So where there's clarity, where there's truth, where there's reason, as God has established creation from the very beginning, Satan shows up and interrupts the beauty and the perfection of this world that God has created. And he does it very simply by introducing doubt. Now, it's kind of funny as I think about the irony of those in many in Christendom who don't want to defend Genesis chapter 1. What are they really saying? Has God said, I created the heavens and the earth in six days? Well, yes, he has. Does he tell us exactly how he did that? No, he gives us something of a process. It's a very orderly process. If he does it for, or if he does it in a certain way, there's probably a certain reason why he does it that way. And we should expect to find answers like that 
if we consider those questions. But the question of whether he created the heavens and the earth in six days is settled in Genesis chapter 1. And we'll talk when we get to the session on creation about how foolish it is for us to try to guess or try to invent what we think might have happened so long ago and so far back in time when there was literally no one there, no person there to see it. As Kim, Ken Ham says, there, there was one witness to creation and that was God and he told us how he did it. I might add to that that I think that the angels were there and were witnesses to creation as well. But other than that, there was no man there to see exactly how it happened or exactly how long it took. And in that case, we have to rely on the testimony of the one who says this is how he did it. And because Genesis is historical and not poetical, there is no reason to try to distort the meaning of Genesis 1 to mean something else. So we take God's word as he delivers it to us. Whereas Satan comes in and starts to put a stick in the creek, so to speak, and stir the mud and dirty the water and make it harder for us to understand, seemingly, what, frankly, five minutes ago was very clear. So we have to watch out for him, and we'll think a little bit during the course of the day about how he does what he does. But the clue is, if you pay some particular attention to those opening verses of Genesis 3, you'll begin to see what his tactics are. And the tactics don't change very much. But he is crafty. And depending on which translation you have, it may say that he's the most subtle creature or the craftiest of the creatures. He's very intelligent. We're also going to find out later that he knows exactly what God said. I think part of the necessity of saying there were angels is that he was there when God gave the command. He heard exactly what God said to the man. And yet he took what God said and started to distort it and cause doubt and confusion. Where else do we see, or where do we see Satan quoting Scripture? He's a crafty beast in the wilderness when Christ is tempted. He's quoting from Psalm 91 and saying, throw yourself off the temple because it is written, he will give his angels charge over you to bear you up so that you don't dash your foot against a stone. And what does Jesus say in reply? It is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And there becomes an important principle of interpretation, we're Reformed, so we have a fancy Latin name for everything. In this case, it's analogia scriptura, meaning that we compare scripture to scripture, that we can't just take little verses here and there and try to make them mean what they want. we want them to say, but we have to take the whole of scripture. And so we need to be concerned not just with a few of the things that God has said, but all of it. He's revealed all of it. Uh, for faith and for life. <clears throat> what happens then when we take Scripture and add a dose of skepticism to it? 
we end up with something called theological liberalism. And I remember some years ago when we were engaged in the pro-life battle that one of the things that appeared by a columnist in our local newspaper was the statement, a church-going, by the way, church-going columnist, ostensibly, was the statement something like this. We know what God's Word says, we just don't know what it means. And that's really a profoundly foolish statement, but it also basically says that even though you have about 800,000 words in this book that God has spoken, we have no idea what he said. We, we can't make any sense out of it. He tried. He gave it the old college try, a thousand pages, even in a slimline Bible. But he just couldn't make his point. Do we really believe that? If that's going to be our attitude towards Scripture, then we really are lost. And man left to his own devices, it doesn't turn out well. Just as a footnote, you can refer to the Enlightenment as an illustration of how poorly it goes when man says, we are going by the powers of our own reason, using man as the measure of himself to figure out what's true and what's not. And over the course of the history of philosophy these last few hundred years, if you wonder why we're in the state that we're in now, where the the state of philosophy basically says there's nothing that's true, there's nothing that we can know, epistemology is dead, there's no such thing as morality, ethics, that's all gone. We don't know what's true. We're completely lost. And so you see the kind of chaos and anarchy that results from that when we have abandoned truth and reason. You're going to hear me quote a few times during the day from Francis Schaeffer. If there's someone who understood the flow of history and philosophy and where it was taking us and where we would end up, better than Schaeffer, I haven't found him. I was recently rereading some of his works. And it's kind of funny that I keep looking back to the copyright page and saying, when was this published? 1970? Really? Because it sounds like it was written yesterday. I won't call him a prophet, but he was prophetic in his ability to see where the flow of philosophy and these ideas was taking us. He knew very well back in the 60s and early 70s where humanism was taking us. And here we are. And while it's alarming how quickly things have changed and gone south, it's not really surprising if we understand that the foundation of Christian thinking, the foundation of truth and reason, and we might add morality into that as well, was stripped away generations ago. We've been coasting on momentum. And now things are grinding to a halt, and this is where we are. At any rate, I did have a point, and it was that Francis Schaeffer refers to this problem of theological liberalism as God words. He says we use these God words, like God and like Jesus, but they don't mean anything. They're mystical words. Christianity has been turned into mysticism where there's really no truth. It's just whatever you want it to be. 
And he makes the point that there's no significant difference in terms of thinking between the secular philosophy of humanism and the theological liberalism that has God words rather than God's truth. And that's where we are, not only in society, but also in much of the church, unfortunately. If it's the case that God cannot speak clearly, then we are in serious trouble. Because the scripture claims a number of things for itself. One of the things that it claims, well, here's a, for instance, it claims to be true. That's kind of important. It claims to be precisely the word of God. And if it's true, and it is the word of God, then guess what? It comes with authority. And if God says, this is my law, it's not up for debate. And yet the whole history of civilization since the fall has been one of rebelling against the word of God as he's revealed it to us and suffering the consequences. I can't help thinking about the anecdote of the ox kicking against the goads in one of Paul's testimony of his conversion. He says, the Lord said to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And that refers to a board with spikes in it that was placed behind the stubborn ox as it's pulling the cart. The ox would kick backwards into this board full of spikes. And all he's doing is hurting himself. He's not really accomplishing anything. He's only showing how stubborn he is, even to the point of causing himself pain. And that's much like what the human heart is in its fallen condition. We will kick against God's truth. We will kick against his law and say, no, I'm going to do this my way. And the results are disastrous. Now, as we bring this session to conclusion, I want to turn your attention to chapter 16 of Luke. There is a narrative in Luke 16, and I won't call it a parable because it's not quite clear if it's a parable or if it's an actual historical event. But it involves a rich man and a poor beggar named Lazarus. So I'd like to read that section of Scripture to you, starting in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, Jesus, said to them, A man once gave a great banquet and invited... Am I in the right place? I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. I'm sure that's a good passage too. It's the wrong one though. Sorry. We're in 16 starting in verse 19. You've got to watch me. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish 
in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But he is now comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And here I'll make a quick point, going back to the opening idea of truth and reason. If you've ever wondered why it is that you can argue with someone in no amount of persuasion, no amount of information, no amount of data will change their mind. This helps us to understand what it means that when we worship idols, we become blind. We can't see even what's in front of us. What's this story describing? Two men, one who lived frankly, a miserable life, sick, sore, unable to care for himself, looking for just a little compassion, and then this rich man. Now, what's interesting about this is that you might have expected the sick man to die. That wouldn't be too much of a surprise. But what happens is the one who wasn't sick also died. And it sounds like they died at about the same time. The death came almost certainly as a surprise to the rich man in his comfort. And what do we infer from this story about where the rich man expected to be after he died? It's pretty clear that he did not expect to be in the flame. And yet he lived in comfort without regard for the life to come. He was concerned about the things of this life and obviously not concerned about the things of the next. And then his plea, part of his plea is, let me go back and warn my brothers. I I don't want them to end up in the same place because they must be thinking the same thing, that this is where they're going to end up. But it's not. And we see that salvation is not by works, it's not by status or wealth, power, any of those kinds of things. That both the rich man and the poor man die, that the one who's well and the one who's sick, they both die. And that the real question that we're left with is where do we end up after we die? And here's both the dichotomy and the antithesis. There's heaven and there's hell. Those are the only two options. And so it's incumbent upon us, and part of the the lesson of this narrative is that after you die, there is no changing the equation. 
that the matter of salvation has to be settled in this life. And so throughout the day, I'm going to be urging you with words like this to consider the state of your own salvation and to remember what God has done in Christ for your salvation and to put your trust in Him because He is the only way and the only truth. Amen. Let me finish briefly with the quote from R.C. Sproul, one of my favorites. When there's something in the Word of God that I don't like, the problem is not with the Word of God, it's with me. Amen.